I was taking um, somebody up to get their vaccination at, um, up at Bells Hill, at the sports centre up there on Friday, and I bought a newspaper to sit and look at in the car whilst I was waiting. And the, the Times, the paper that I happened to get on um, Friday morning, had a picture of this. It was um, the scene from Mars, and entitled underneath in, in small type, The Rover, the Mars Rover, sent an image of the surface of Mars, and his own shadow soon after touching down. It is amazing, isn't it, that we can see pictures of the skyline of the horizon of the planet Mars. But the headline in the paper, and you might see this in the camera, I don't know whether you will or not, headline in the paper, which caught my attention, first of all, was Hope for Holidays Overseas. Now, if you're planning to go to Mars for your holidays in the autumn, that might just be a wee bit um, ambitious. I'm not sure your vaccine passport would take you that far. Um, but nonetheless, um, our scope, our horizons are being lifted, if not as vast as the planet of Mars and part of the wonder of God's creation, but certainly perhaps the hope for at least some of us to maybe have a holiday or to see family or to visit people down south or whatever it may be as the year goes on. Our hope obviously is that with the lockdown, the effect of lockdown, with the vaccination and with other things in place, then some measure of normal life will return at some point, probably falling on from Easter. We'll hear what both the Prime Minister and the First Minister has to say about that. Indeed, in that very paper, there was some talk about this, because obviously people are now talking about the results, the post-lockdown, this new normal that is often spoke about. Um, there have been many decisions made over this past year to do with our public life, decisions that perhaps a year ago we thought would have been impossible, and people have, on the whole, accepted them. The various versions of lockdown and restrictions and mask wearing, and now, as I say, mass vaccination. But all along, and if you wanted to, if you were that desperate to do something, you could go back and perhaps listen to even some things I said way back last March and April. And even then, there was a discussion amongst those who were involved with SAGE and those who were involved in other areas of public policy, a discussion about how one weighed up the consequences of decisions being made and what should be involved in that weighing up of the decisions. Was it only saving the NHS and the number of deaths, predominantly still, of elderly and frail people and those who have underlying health conditions? Or should other issues be taken into account? And according to what I've read this week, there certainly has been a bit of a dispute between Mark Woolhouse of SAGE from Edinburgh University and our own Jason Leach, again from Scotland, as to the way ahead and what should be weighed up in any decisions made about the winding down of lockdown. Uh, Mark Woolhouse has a broader view from the very beginning. He thought we should also take into account the impact on society generally, particularly upon younger people, upon children, upon families, that we should take into account the impact on industry and the economic structure of our country. At the end of the day, if we want to have a first-class NHS, we're going to have to be able to provide the income for that. And alongside these things, we then have to make decisions. Actions do have consequences. We know that in our own lives. And the consequences of all that has happened over this past year, well, the real lasting consequences of that will only now begin to be, wound, be revealed, whether that be 
In a practical terms, more of us having to turn to private health care to get our teeth done, or our ears cleaned, or whatever it may be, or whether that will be the impact on education, upon funding for organisations like the health service, which at the end of the day is a bottomless pit, on our economy, on jobs, on young people coming out from college and university, and of unemployment, which we'll surely see as furlough is wound down. Challenging months, indeed a few years, that lie ahead as a result of actions taken over this past year. As we've been looking at the book of Ezekiel, and I invite you to open up the book of Ezekiel. If you don't have your Bible with you, you're really going to struggle, I'm afraid, because this morning we're going to pick up. We've been looking at the section within the book. As I said right at the beginning, I have no intention of working way through the whole book. It would stretch my abilities beyond, beyond their ability, and it will also stretch your patience. My intention this, this morning, we're going to go back to that section from Ezekiel chapter 4 to 13, look at the outworking of things we've been talking about. Next Sunday, there'll be a glimmer of hope friends so stick with it next Sunday there'll be the message in the midst of these verses of hope of restoration of you beginning we'll then probably have a break in the run up to Easter and then God willing after Easter we'll return to some chapters in the book of Ezekiel that are later on in the story chapters that perhaps some of them which are more familiar to us but if you open your Bibles to that section this morning last Sunday as we looked perhaps more in depth at Ezekiel chapter 8 we saw some of the signs of how wayward God's people, or at least the leaders of God's people, were. And the signs, the tangible signs behind the scenes, through the wall, done perhaps in secret, although some of them were pretty public, but nonetheless some of the signs of the idolatry that had gripped the people of God, or as I say, the leaders anyway, of the people of God. That temptation not to worship the Lord our God and him only serve that verse that Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy against the devil, but to begin to look to other things. And under the pressure of life, and under the pressure of peer pressure, and under the lure of so much that we see round about us. I was speaking to somebody yesterday who was talking about how they had become convinced about how deceived they had become as a young man, deceived by the whole multimedia and the whole connections and WhatsApp and Instagram and Twitter and all these other things and how they present a, a picture of a type of life but how deceptive that is and how dangerous this is. That was somebody, a younger man who's not a Christian, but nonetheless looking at things and thinking about things. How easily we all can be led astray into idolatry which ultimately of course is the ultimate sin i'm the king of the castle i can determine things by my own understanding a mindset and a view of the world that sees things through that lens rather than through the lens of keeping the glory of god and the honor of god and the service of god as our prime calling and how that impacts and what we do with our money and how we understand our careers, how we use our homes, how we understand even the preciousness of our own life and everything else, all of that is impacted by that spirit of idolatry. And as I said at the very end of my sermon last Sunday, it's rife in the Church of God in Britain and in the West today. But what are the consequences? What are the consequences for these Actions. Well, let's read together some verses, and these are hard verses, maybe not ones we would normally like to read or even want to think about from Ezekiel chapter 9. 
Then I heard him, that's the voice of God, call out in a loud voice, bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city of Jerusalem, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen who had a writing kit, or not a writing kit, but he had, he had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim where it had been and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, Defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So they went out and began killing throughout the city. And while they were killing, I was left alone. I fell face down, crying out, Alas, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? And he answered me, The sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of bloodshed and the city is full of injustice. They say, The Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. Not easy verses. But I hope as we've read those verses, have read them ourselves and heard them read, then another story in the Bible will come to mind. I hope so anyway. And it's the story of the Passover. The story of the angel of death of God's judgment that passed over Egypt. The story of how God's people were told to take the blood of the lamb and to put it on the door lintels of their house. And when that angel of God's judgment passed over the land of Egypt, when it saw a house with the door lintel marked in the blood of the lamb, it would literally pass over that house and then go on and do its business. And indeed, as we've heard that story, I do indeed hope that you have got that picture of the Passover, of the Passover lamb, and of the blood of the lamb, and of God's actions right in the midst of this. Notice what it says right at the beginning. Even though there's this warning of judgment, there's also that warning, or that offer rather, of hope and of protection. Verse 4, go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done. And these people, these people are spared. Now obviously what we have here is an insight into spiritual warfare. This was not actually taking place at the time that Ezekiel had the vision. Although in history, a few years down the line, it did take place. As Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem after it had rebelled, and as Nebuchadnezzar's troops after a lengthy siege where the people were starved into submission, 
entered the city and destroyed it. We will touch upon that probably next Sunday. So this is Ezekiel having an insight into that spiritual reality. That should remind us, of course, shouldn't it, of that spiritual reality that we've often referred to in Paul's letters to the Ephesians, where he writes this. He talks about God's people, Ephesians 6 and verse 10, to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then after going through the various parts of the armor of God, he says in verse 18, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And what Ezekiel is seeing is that spiritual battle, the battle between the powers of God and the angels and those who are carrying out God's purposes, and the other powers, the powers that are set against God. And so behind the scenes of history, and we've said this so often, behind the circumstances, even of these last months, and we need to bear that in mind, behind all of that there is a spiritual reality, there is a spiritual battle, the world, and indeed the universe, is at war. But of course what challenges us here and is uncomfortable is of course here we're reading of God's angel of death, God's angels of judgment carrying out that purpose. And perhaps we think, well, that doesn't really fit in with Jesus. After all, was he not in the business of forgiving and of loving and of reaching out the hand and of drawing in and of turning the cheek? After all, is that not what he did in his life and ministry? Well, yes, but that's only part of the story. Let me read again verses that I touched upon a few weeks ago. Jesus sending out the 72 in Luke chapter 10 to go out into every town and place. And he commends them and tells them to go out and to heal the sick and to tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. But in verse 10 of chapter 10, we read this. And when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom. And remember the story of Sodom destroyed by fire. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, that is, non-Jewish territory, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it were more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. And then just later on in that section in Luke's gospel, these words, in Luke 11, verse 37, Jesus is finished speaking. A Pharisee invites him to dinner, and he's sitting there, and the Pharisees are surprised when they notice that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Verse 38 of chapter Luke, Luke 11. And the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. 
Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, ruin all the other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You shall practice the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, because you are you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. And then he goes on to talk about what do you experts in the law because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who were entering. And he makes it very clear that as they dealt with the prophets, so they will be, de they will be dealt with harshly. Verse 51 of that same section, I tell you this generation will be held responsible for all it has done. Woe to you. We need to keep this intention. We read here in Ezekiel of a God of judgment. A God who sees into the human heart. Who sees those who generally are concerned. They are protected. A mark on the foreheads is placed upon them. Because they grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done. But a God who also sees into the heart, the hearts of those who outwardly appear very religious, but inwardly are hearts filled with idolatry and other forms of sin. Jesus saw it all. He called upon his Father to be witness and called upon God to deal with them. Woe unto them. Can I say to you, and I say this, Kindly to those of you who come from the, I came from the Church of Scotland, but one of the signs of those who come from the Church of Scotland, I have to say, is that whenever we talk about the faith, we always talk about love. And it's about being nice and a good neighbor, of being a friend, of being generous, of opening up the heart, of reaching out to those who are in need. Now, all of that is true. Jesus makes that clear. But also, a zeal for the glory of God. That's one of the vows that ministers are meant to make when they are called into ministry. It's not zeal for the glory of God. An awareness of God's holiness and of his justice. That God is not mocked. That he sees into the heart of men and women. That his wrath burns against sin. And that by nature we are children of wrath. That, and that, his justice and holiness and his love and mercy don't contradict each other, but are held in tension. And we see that in Ezekiel. Those who grieve and lament are saved. Those who have set their hearts against God are judged. And then we notice from this section also the place of prayer. Remember I read from Ephesians and the, and the call to pray. And we see that here in Ezekiel. He is so rightly troubled by what he says and the destruction that goes on round about him that in verse 8, while they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down crying out, Alas, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Here is somebody who is stirred. This actually reminds us of Abraham, for instance, interceding for Sodom and for all that that meant. This is a picture of Moses 
interceding for Israel as God was going to judge them and indeed destroy them because of the rebellion in the wilderness as they journeyed to the land of promise. This is the sign of someone crying out to God, Nehemiah, as he wept over Jerusalem and as he cried to God that he might rebuild and restore his people. This is an insight into someone's heart who doesn't delight in seeing God's judgments abroad, but yearn that God's glory would be honoured and his people saved. Can I say I'm encouraged that some stuff that's come to me or come to Elizabeth this past week suggests that at least among some of those who a year ago were prophesying revival are now calling for repentance in our nation, particularly amongst God's people. And if there's going to be any restoration, any hope for a remnant, any sign of God's goodness being more and more revealed within our church and within our society, it has to begin with saying, Oh God, have mercy. I'm sorry. And please, please do not deal with us as our sins deserve. More could be said of this section, but time presses on. Because I want to move on to the next consequence of this. There is judgment. And Ezekiel sees that spiritually being worked out. And it's worked out in history ultimately. And that's a truism. God's schemes and purposes and actions in the spiritual domain will have an impact on life and time, on lives and in history. And the outworking of that, I would suggest as I have for these last months, is being seen even in these present days within the church, and within our own nation. But even worse, perhaps in some ways than that, is the next stage, Ezekiel chapter 10. I looked, we read, and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli above the vault that was over the heads of the cherubim. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty, El Shaddai, when he speaks. And then there is a, a further picture of this glory and of majesty and of the angels and, and everything else. And then in verse 18, Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stood among the cherubim. And while I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. And then if you want to flick on to chapter 11 and verse 22 and this. Then the cherubim with the wheels beside them spread their wings and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. The spirit lifted me up and brought me to the exiles in Babylonia in the vision given by the spirit of God. 
what are we seeing here? Well, first of all, Ezekiel has, again, that spiritual insight, the gift of discernment and, and a vision from the Lord. And he actually sees into a place that he, humanly speaking, would never have gone into. He's seeing into the very holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, and where on top of the Ark of the Covenant, golden symbolic angels were presented. I always draw you back to um, Harrison Ford, Indiana Jones, and the Temple of, not the Temple of Doom, the, the, the Ark of the Covenant, remember? And the picture of that there, if you want to remember, that's what it kind of looked like, with, with these angelic golden statues placed on top. That symbolized the presence of God. That actually is what he's seeing, these golden cherubim. And yet he's seen them not as statues, but as living realities, the might and the majesty of God. Ezekiel, perhaps of all the major prophets of the Old Testament, had a vision of the glory and majesty of God. And we rightly need to see that today. We need to ask for the Spirit to open our eyes that we might see wondrous things contained within God's Word, that we might catch a glimpse. Yes, as through glass darkly, because in a sense we can only gaze at it through darkened glasses. Something of the glory of the holiness and majesty of God that burns brighter than the brightest sun that extends through the vastness of the universe and yet in His mercy and grace is message and revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Think of the transfiguration. Think of his ascension. Think of his promise that he will come again. This is the one. The Lord of hosts. But notice what happens. The vision he has in Ezekiel 10 is the glory of the Lord filling the temple. Reminds us of Isaiah. And his encounter in the year that King Uzziah died. Remember that? But notice how that glory and that sound of the angels, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks, that that reality of God's presence in the very heart of not just the temple, the building, but the very heart of his people, by the end of the chapter, chapter 10, is moved to the east gate of the Lord's house, is beginning to move out. And then by the end of chapter 11, it's gone. We read that in verse 23, the glory of the Lord goes up from within the city and stops above the mountain east of it. And then the Spirit lifts me up and brings me back to Babylonia to the vision given by the Spirit of God. What's Ezekiel saying there? He's basically seeing the Lord's glory being taken out and away from his people. And as we shall see next Sunday, in reality, that had quite specific impact. The people were going to be besieged, the people would be barren, and the people would be confronted with desolation. We'll look at that next Sunday, 4, 5, and 6 of this section in Ezekiel. But just as we draw to a close, this is solemn. I can remember, as Elizabeth can, twenty. Two years ago, dear goodness, a long time ago now, coming to meet with the vacancy committee here in the church through in the hall, which at that time had just been done up. The floor had been leveled and the stage taken away and everything else. And we were taken through into the church sanctuary. And of course, it was very different at that time. There was pews and different lighting and everything. And yet we both said later that as we walked in to this sanctuary, 
we sensed the presence of God. Not because God is contained within a building. I mean, obviously, as we read here, we can see that. He's far greater than any building. Of course he is. But he does delight and inhabit the praises of his people. He does desire to be found in their midst when they gather in his name. He does, as we shall see next week, yeah, above everything else, that his glory and his honor would be revealed. But up and down our land, sadly, the Lord's glory has departed many of his sanctuaries. And that's serious and sad. That is perhaps understandable when it's perhaps a church congregation, a place, a building, which was used not for biblical ministry, but for liberal ministry. I can think of a church, I'll not mention too many details, but in Lanarkshire, where it was intramodular way back in the 2000s, a very impressive building. It's still standing in the town where it is, not very far from here. Not in Erdingston, I hasten to add, but not that far from here. It's in Lanarkshire. And I was asked to be inter-moderator. And I remember looking at this very impressive building set upon a hill, walking in some lovely stained glass windows and everything else. And yet, even as I walked in, it was one of the coldest. And when I say that, I don't mean that the heating wasn't on, because churches can be quite cold. But one of the spiritually coldest and deadest spiritually places I'd ever gone into. I remember once taking a service there, and it was like pushing a tank or a bus up a hill. It's long closed. Still there, the building. But the worship of God has gone from it. Actually, it's now used as a funeral parlour. An abode of the dead. But if that's sad, it's even sadder when faithful gatherings of God's people. And I think particularly this morning of the situation in Bergedi. With the parish church and the little UF church, both of which I've been interim moderator of, are closing, shutting down, leaving an area, an area where there is a great division between the folks who are living in Dropelia Lawns and the folks who are living, many of whom struggling to live, in the village of Burgetti. An area where, apart from the Roman Catholic Church, which itself is on kind of part-time basis, without a gathering of God's people. And there's many questions and many thoughts and many struggles over all of that. But what is clear is that when God no longer has a purpose for a place or for a people, he's not restrained by that. He will move on. In fact, ironically, he's moved on here with Ezekiel back to Babylon. In fulfillment to a promise he gave through the prophet Jeremiah that the, the, the remnant of Israel would actually be those who were in Babylon, miles away from the temple, miles away from Jerusalem, in, a, in many ways what could appear to be a God-forsaken land. But God would meet with his people there rather than in Jerusalem. And we must never presume, I must never presume, you must never presume, that God will continue to bless us or his people if we lose sight of his majesty or fail to heed his leading.
And the consequences for Israel, or for Judah, were going to be serious. We'll look at that and the word of promise next Sunday. But I don't know about you, but that's solemn enough for me, for the day, and indeed for the week. All that Ezekiel sees of that spiritual warfare and of God's compassion on those who sought his face. Ezekiel's crying out to God, begging God, alas, sovereign Lord. His heart anguish over all that was happening. And that need for repentance from our own lips and the glory of God. That tangible reality of the one who is, in that sense, intangible. Being known and experienced but moving on somewhere else. That's food for thought on this Lord's day. Lord, have mercy on us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are troubled by the state of our land. But we're also troubled by what we hear from your word and your word, which is a word to your people. Judgment begins, as Peter tells us, first and foremost with the household of God. We're troubled when we hear of places like Bergedi and congregations that we've had an association with, faithful groups of people closing and the impact that that's going to have on that community including the impact of work in the schools and through the safety zone. Lord, there is much that we've heard this morning that stirs our hearts. We thank you for your mercy for those who were grieved and lamenting and of how you saved them and protected them. Of Ezekiel's heartfelt cry, and we echo that cry, Lord, have mercy on us. Come and heal your church. Cleanse with your fire. Heal with your touch. Humbly we bow and call upon you now. O Lord, have mercy on us. And we pray, O God, our Father, that as your Spirit has ministered and spoken to us through these challenging passages of Scripture, so you will continue to speak through your Word. As we read devotionally, and as we reflect more thoughtfully on all that we've heard together this day. And we pray, we pray particularly this morning for the situation in Bergedi. We thank you, O God, for a few folks who have a burden to see a work, a you work, begin out of the dying of one work, a you work perhaps beginning. And so we pray for, for those folks, three men in particular, from other fellowships who have met for prayer. We just pray for your leading and guiding for them and for what they represent, the fellowships they represent. We pray for the office bearers of Bergetti UF as we try to get a meeting together to begin to wind things down there. 
they're both, they're all very clear, the ladies, that something that has to end first before a you work can begin. And so we just pray about that and pray for that little fellowship. As we pray for the folks in the parish church, scattered to the four winds, very few living within that community. And pray for Alistair Brock at the session clerk and for Joan at the UF church's session clerk as they seek, along with the help that interim moderators can provide, people like myself and Michael Lyle, to shepherd the flock of God and lead them into whatever future you have for them. So we commend particularly that area, your work in that area, we cry to you for mercy. We ask for your wisdom. We see people there in spiritual need. And we grieve and lament over the state of your church, not just there, but in our land. Lord Jesus Christ, hear us as we pray. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship and companionship of the Holy Spirit rest upon us and dwell within us this day and forevermore.